Hi Enrico, uh, how hey. are you doing? <laughs> How's it going? Good, how is life? It's great, summer is here, apparently. Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. That's a Nobody start. else can stand it, but me, I love it. <laughs> I love the heat. The Italian jeans are... Everything. Yeah, the Italian jeans yeah. are still there, Yeah. <laughs> kicking hard. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally imagine. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, it's good here in Germany, it's, it's nice too. And uh, I just came back from a week of Barcelona. Oh, so I, I won't complain. Oh, you're treating man, you're treating yeah. yourself quite yeah. yeah. Oh, nicely. I was I was working, of course. Yeah, working yeah, hard. Yeah. Now uh, we yeah. had another edition of the Data Cuisine Workshop. Finally, after like two years of trying to to make it happen again, we we pulled oh, it off. Oh, that's totally cool. Or mostly the our Barcelonian partners, the CCCB and Sona Festival. Uh huh. They made it happen, and we did it four days, four hours a day. Had so a fantastic did you make the, chef. The the fiesta did you have the fiesta kind of thing you mean like partying or what yeah kind of like <laughs> drinking all the time and hanging yeah around yeah there was sona festival which is a big big music festival and that was in the last few days our evening program too so oh, that's yeah. cool. and on wednesday i met ferran adria who is like one of the most legendary uh, chefs uh, worldwide wow yeah and he gave us a tour through his new exhibition and Explained us why our workshop was a bad idea overall. It was fantastic. That <laughs> <Cool. laughs> no, was really good. Yeah, yeah. So and did, documentation did you, is did you record something? Uh, no recordings. No, we didn't. We weren't allowed to take photos. Super secret, just for friends. You know how it is. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, me. but the documentation for the workshop is forthcoming. I think it will be out when you listen to that. So. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Good cool. stuff. Cool. We even have had a food printer, so it's a 3D printer that can print food, like um, uh, like cream cheese or honey or uh, chocolate. You can print pretty well and build sculptures. Um, you mean with real a food, food printer? Food that you Actually, can eat? edible food that comes out of a, wow. a machine-controlled uh, syringe, basically. Oh my god! Yeah, and you can like print patterns and sculptures and all kinds of crazy shit. Oh, that's that's cool. Mm -hmm. Really mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. Did you take some pictures? Yeah, lots of them. So okay, it will all yeah. be up on datacuisine.net. We'll put it in the post. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, great. And I had great. a great week. Uh, very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Summer is good. Yeah. We are happy. Yeah. Now back to doing like boring stuff, like recording data <laughs> yeah. stories and things. Yeah, like that. boring yeah. stuff like yeah. recording Gray data stories. World. Yeah. <laughs> We are so miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so, should we start? Totally. You want to introduce yeah, the episode so and guest? We have a topic we have been discussing, I think, for a year now. That we Forever, need to, yeah. yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's one of the things that we really want to improve on. And so we thought we'd invite some <laughs> pros. And the topic is, how do you actually teach data visualization? Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's the yeah. hardest thing, right? <laughs> That's huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's so important to me. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I'm yeah. struggling all the it's time. It's your with job. This. So I think at some point yeah. you, need to, you need to sort of <laughs> figure it out, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is that people believe when they when they talk to professors, they believe that once you once the semester ends, you are done with your job, right? Mm. 
which is actually the opposite. Now you can finally do your your job. The actual job. <laughs> the actual yeah, job. I mean, it depends <laughs> which part yeah. you find more important. But yeah, sure. Yeah. And nobody tells you how to teach, right? Like you become a professor, but actually that, that's just, the weird thing. You exactly, become there's no yeah. theory about like how to teach no. stuff. No, uh, at least not here. I don't know if there are other universities no, where no. when everybody's winging it. And yeah. so we in, we invited two people who are winging it pretty uh, professionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so one is Andy Kirk. Hey, Andy. Good afternoon. Good evening. How are you all doing? Yeah, excellent. We are doing great. So great pleasure to be back for number five. I think. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Definitely yeah. one more than uh, Mr. Robert Kozara, Zara, yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what counts. And uh... and greetings to Robert Albert. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say, if you're wondering, it's the same Andy Kirk as ever. Sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah. 1.0 yeah yeah what can you do <laughs> and we have uh scott murray here hey scott yeah hey good morning how are you doing i'm doing really well excited to be here first first time caller <laughs> many time listener Listening? something right. like that yeah however it goes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> But we met already on uh, visualizing Q&A, and for a moment I thought you have been on Data Stories already, but actually you haven't been, right? No, I'm just a, a constant presence in everyone's lives. <laughs> right, it right. just feels like I've been here before. No, yeah. No, yeah. I'm excited to be here before because every, you know, it seems every uh, episode this kind of conversation comes up and I'm excited to be part of the conversation. Ah, that's cool. There's so, so many challenges. Yeah. So tell us a little what you do for the listeners. Should I go first? Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so I teach uh, my sort of full-time day job is I teach in the design program at the University of San Francisco. That's an undergraduate program. So my sort of context for working here is I work uh, primarily with, uh, well, entirely with undergraduate students. And they, let's see, I teach a number of courses. The one we're probably interested in is our information visualization course. And one thing I think is really interesting, I have uh, colleagues in other departments, like in the computer science department, my colleague Sophie Engel, uh, and my colleague Alark Joshi also teach like in various, well, a different information visualization course, but it's to a totally different, eh, not totally different, it's still undergraduate students, but it's computer science students, right? So um, one thing we talk a lot about is this, you know, addressing these different audiences and how we can collaborate, but we have different assumptions of background knowledge. So uh, anyway, I teach teach at USF. Um, also, I'm a code artist, so I sort of do a lot of work with D3. People may recognize my name as I have a book out about D3, and um, that's obviously a fantastic tool that gets mentioned a lot on here. Uh, I also contribute to processing. I use processing for a lot of my own work. So if you haven't heard of that, it's a free open source language for um, artists and designers. Uh, what else? Yeah, and I guess I do, you know, various like workshops and things here and there. Um, just always trying to sort of get people involved, and and essentially, like, really, I'm interested in reaching out to the kind of beginner level people who either aren't in the field yet or are in the field but don't have the technical skills that they want yet, and trying to sort of bring them up to speed. Mostly because I think this stuff isn't as scary as a lot of people think it is. So just sort of trying to do a little handholding in that respect. 
So Scott, let me take this opportunity to say thank you for your book. I mean, it's 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 so <laughs> it's so useful. <laughs> I mean, it, no, seriously, I think it's it's. I mean, I think you really had an impact with this book. Thank you. Thanks a lot. My nice. my my students love it. So, nice. It's no, cool. that is great. It's yeah. I mean, I. We should have a whole other episode where we just talk about the book. Yeah, actually. yeah. That, that would be really helpful <laughs> yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. But no, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. lectures out too, right? At, at O'Reilly. Yeah, right? we just uh, we just published a new like video course. So O'Reilly does you know books they're mostly known for. They also organize conference and do these video courses and a bunch of other things. So we just released a video course, which is um, basically. I mean, one thing I'm glad you brought it up because I sort of want to talk about it today. I'm interested in experimenting with these sort of new models for education. So. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly there's um, enormous value in the traditional university model, but um, there's a lot of people around the world who can't travel to San Francisco or can't travel to London or wherever. And um, New York, don't want to leave New York out of that list, offend somebody. And uh, yeah, so we did this video course, which was essentially like me trying to translate what I would normally do as sort of a four-hour intro workshop in person uh, into a three-hour video course and it's only three hours because you don't get to ask questions uh and there's no time for the projector to malfunction or anything like that uh -huh. um and you can also pause whenever you need a break right yeah, so we don't have yeah. to schedule on time for yeah but yeah it, it's been really interesting to get feedback on that and yeah sort of see how these different models work because the the book serves kind of the same audience as the video but it's uh it's a different learning style it's a different approach so, Andy, you want to say a few words about yourself, even if you did it at least five times already or four <laughs> yeah. times already? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I suppose in summary, I've been um, a data visualization freelancer since October 2012 now. Um, the primary um, time that I spend is on data visualization training courses, typically one-day courses, either in a public setting around the world in different locations are also increasingly for um, kind of uh, corporate clients are looking for an on-site bespoke event. Uh, I also teach on the um, InfoViz uh, master's degree at MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art. Uh, that is a, a module that actually I've just recently finished actually. So that is a, a kind of a, um, a online tuition model. So I teach from the UK, um, streaming back to uh, to the States, which is a very, obviously, a very different setting and a very different experience. And it's, uh, you know, we'll come on to some of the nuances of that experience later on. But um, I'm also doing consultancy work, design work. I've I've also written a book, Scott. Um, and, <laughs> and, and just this last <laughs> By week... By the I've, way... <laughs> this, this last week, I've, uh, I've been approved for book number two as well, which is both exciting and terrifying in equal mm. measures. Congratulations, um, that's awesome. Thank yeah. you much. Um, and, I, you know, this is the book that I wanted to write in the first place, but it'll give me more chance to breathe and to also introduce some colour, which will be uh, pleasant for those who buy the print version. Um, uh, but I think also, which is relevant to this um, session today, I'm also on a research project at the University of Leeds looking at visualisation literacy. So we're doing a study on how the general public... Um, Everyday people, for want of a better term, which is a horrible term, but we're looking at how well-equipped people are at consuming and making sense of visualizations. Because, as you just said at the start, we don't get taught 
how to teach visualisation, but we don't really get taught how to consume and read and make sense of at any stage of education. We just get by from exposure. Uh, and that's something we're looking to try and get a sense of where people are in the general public and what we can do to address the gaps that people need. Because you can't get away from this in the kind of modern society. So in a nutshell, that's me. Oh, I run the website, visualisingdebtor.com as well. So check it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic. And um, so I think it's pre- what is pretty interesting here is that each of us has... Uh, at least some experience teaching visualization and by talking with you guys before, I know that everyone is struggling one way or another. So I, I am myself teaching to uh, compu- computer science students and the is teaching to a whole spectrum of different people with these workshops. Scott is teaching mainly to uh, design students, right, Scott? Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, Moritz is also teaching from time to time, right, Moritz? Sometimes, yeah. So I do. So the format I like the most are actually three day or two day workshops. Yeah. Uh, but I also taught like a few hours or one day or sometimes even a whole semester. Yeah. But, um, sometimes the scientists, artists, designers, professionals. It depends a bit. Uh-huh. But I'm an so. amateur at teaching. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm wondering how about each of us starts with uh, giving a little bit of um, uh, I don't know comments about what are what are what are you struggling with, right? So when you teach visualization, how is it to teach visualization in your experience? Not only uh, the struggle, but also, I mean, in general, what's the experience of teaching this in your in your classes? I'm really curious to hear that. I have all sorts of stories myself. <laughs> Andy, you want to start okay. with that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think the great struggle uh, from experience is what to leave out. Uh, typically, my courses are one-day workshops, although some of the I'm looking forward towards creating a a more kind of formal two to three day offering, which I think will give it the true room to breathe. But what can you fit into a day that really captures the essence of visualization, gets the balance between the craft versus instruction, theory versus practice? Um, I mean, having constructed the materials for the uh, information visualization master's degree at MICA, I've got around 24 hours worth of material there. So how do I squeeze that into what comes down to maybe a seven hours period of contact. Uh, so it's a great challenge. And what I'm trying to do, I guess, and I, I suppose this is where I see my role in the field in general, is trying to find a way to bridge the the gap between the, the top people. Three of you are lined up in front of me right now. The, the illuminati of the field, uh, pushing the boundaries of what we should do and what we could do creatively and, and theoretically. And then, and it's an unfortunate term again, the everyday person out there who's working with data in their day jobs, but it's not necessarily their their vocation or their professional training. So, how do you translate that to the to the kind of um, the lower end of the of the pyramid in in the day? So it's a challenge, and it's something that uh, I was just doing some uh, sums before the session. Uh, I've reached my one hundred and second workshop wow. in, in two and a half years. And I would imagine that there's been 101 different versions of the course. <laughs> uh, you know, not just reflects increasing knowledge on my own behalf, but also just 
that constant tweaking to try and optimise it towards what I think is the the best balance, and it's uh, it's not easy. Um, mm-hmm. And I would have thought that by maybe five or six, I would have nailed it and got to a level playing field. But no, it's... that was the plan. Uh, the plan, probably, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Spending yeah. a lot of time in up, up front, getting the materials ready. But right. no, it's it's, a, it's an ongoing battle. But the film is also changing so fast. Like exactly. Every, like if I give the same slides like a year later, I feel like wow, the project. I mean, so much has happened in the meantime. I should update this, and also my focus is shifting all the time. Right? I, I also so. think as well, if the slides are the same from last year, then you've not really done a service to the people being yeah. trained. You know, you've right. not stayed up to date, and you've not developed or matured yourself because that's an ongoing process of course but what are the constants let's say when you teach like are there a few things that are always there because you say like okay if if I teach somebody they should at least go home with you know these five facts or something like this Mm, is there something mm. like that or well I mean I guess my constant is the structure in the sense that I'm teaching critical thinking wrapped up in a workflow and so in a sense everyone leaves with a sense of um what I believe is the most kind of effective and efficient way forward in any data visualization challenge, big or small, complex or simple. This is the, the, the kind of structure that you can wrap around all your options and all your convictions to develop the best solution. But also, I bang the drum incessantly for it depends for context. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I try and... You've got to embrace, obviously, principles and the, and the black and white of the subject but I do try and stay clear of too much dogmatic approach because you might teach someone how to a great world-class bar chart, but can they move mm-hmm. beyond that single kind of cookie-cutter uh, approach? So I guess that would be the, the main constants. Uh-huh. Yeah. relativist, I see. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, but I see, I think that, that that's a struggle for myself because we all know that the, the kind of principles that we teach, they are not necessarily black and white, right? Mm. So I, I, sometimes I even try to teach something that I call the theory, the visualization, the visualization theory, right? Assuming that there is some kind of theory out there. <laughs> and uh, Pretending that we've Pretending there is one. And, but, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a constant struggle because from the one hand, if you make everything relative, you also run the risk that students just walk away with, with nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering if it's better to give some some clear-cut rules and principles and then let them discover when... I mean, and get it right 90% of the times or maybe yeah. 80 or even 75, whatever. No. And then let them discover that there are cases where this just doesn't work. Or going through these... Um, over and over again saying, oh, yes, that's a rule, but it's not a rule, right? That's yeah. a theory, but it's, it doesn't hold. Or uh, I, I, I really don't know what's the best formula there. Well, I think because I see a risk in both, in both uh, sides, right? Of course. Uh, and, and to a degree, I might structure it around the audience. If it's complete beginners, then the, you know, that may be approach number one. If it's people have got some degree of knowledge, it may be approach number two, but... I mean, sure, there there is there are things that you can hang your hat off. You know, we know about best practice in colour theory. We know about some of the do's and don'ts about encoding. Um, but what I find, and, and this is perhaps reflecting my my own journey, I guess, not go, going too deep too soon in Data Stories 37, but um, my own journey, I guess, trying to embrace more and more creativity and, and the, the, 
the embracing of instinct, sometimes we still need to allow for that. Otherwise, we will end up with dot plots, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for every single uh, every single output. So it, it is absolutely the balance. Um, but so you my try is the craft. to teach also more a general perspective rather than uh, a tool, right? Yeah, so I, I stay clear, certainly one day classes of tools. I do discuss tools. Mm-hmm. I'll do, I will profile people, um, give them a sense of, you know, the, the, the 10, 20 most relevant tools in the field right now. Right, right. And when, and when to use them and on what projects you may have seen examples using those mm-hmm. tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a given class that I'm facing with, let's say a class size of 25, you'll have a, such a blend of people. Some of those people who are Excel people, Tableau people, mm-hmm. uh, business objects people, and then a few who are Illustrator or D3. So if you commit to a certain direction, you'll alienate four-fifths of the class right, right. for that period. It's, so It's just interesting because I think Scott has the exact opposite approach, like starting with a certain tool and then probably trying to uh, make more general points on, on the concrete examples you work on. Or at least that's how I've always experienced your teaching. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, during Andy talk, I feel like position of such a luxury of getting a whole semester to work with the same group of students <laughs> and not you know seven hours in one right, day right. yeah but that you no know, that tension uh i said that's my biggest kind of ongoing challenge is this tension between um tools and uh process principles and history sort of on one side and then the the technology on the other side because um the technology can just eat up so much time, right. um, so, so much time. And I'm sure, Andy, like that's part of why you're just excluding it altogether. But yeah, um, you could spend an afternoon doing, doing, doing yeah. the bath yeah. That's also world. often when my workshops yeah. go south is when I say, okay, let's try this together in like Giphy or Tableau or let's fire up, right. you know, a text editor. It's easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Crash burn. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, yeah, it's so, it's so hard. So I, I mean, I guess I'll just summarize in my classes, like, well, I've taught this course uh, at USF three times, I guess next year will be my fourth time. The first time I taught it, um, it was not technology specific and I focused entirely on the principles and all of our classes are you know, project based, right? So students have to produce mm-hmm. um, some sort of work and, you know, design programs. We have critiques and, um, Sometimes we'll be able to exhibit the work at the the end of the semester. So the first time I taught it, it was not tool specific. I said, use whatever you want. Most people used Illustrator because that's where um, a lot of the students were comfortable. And because we were doing like poster size, like that was sort of the output. Uh, Second time I taught it, uh, we started out that way, but then I introduced processing because I wanted them to be able to work with a data set that was larger than say 50 data points. Um, So we started working with like public data from the city of San Francisco, you know, make me a graphic or a map or something that tells me about the city, something we couldn't have seen about the city. Uh, and so for that, we use processing, um, not in depth, but just to be able to like load data in and encode it in some way and spit it out into a PDF, and then they can bring it back to Illustrator. Uh, last year, did an experiment, and I tried using D3 from the beginning. And the students were real troopers. I told them it was an experiment in the beginning, but it was quite advanced. And they they made some fantastic projects in the end, but we ate up so much time on that that we had less time for 
um, some of the more important stuff. Right. Because um, if you, you know, you can understand the technology, anybody can figure out the technology. Um, you know, you, you buy a book, hint, hint, or something else, and you can figure it out on your own, right? Um, but you can't, it's much harder, I think, to get that one-on-one feedback and input around the, the principles and sort of the visual design process. So, so all that is to say, I think this coming year, I'm going to be switching it up again and do a mix of leaving the tools open so students will probably mm-hmm. use Illustrator, mm-hmm. um, but coming back to processing for one or two projects just when they're dealing with larger data sets. Yeah. Uh, and I'm even going to go, I mean, I, I love processing. I love like teaching processing. It's so much fun to see you know students' eyes light up when they figure out what they can do with it. But I think I'm just going to hand them some code that I've already written that does the hard part of like loading the data in. And then, you know, all they have to learn is the part that spits it out in some visual form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I don't know, that's going to be sort of my approach for this next year of not exactly lowering the bar, but sort of um, limiting the amount of time that gets sucked into the the technical discussion. So I think it's really important. That's not that's not why they're there. I mean, we want our students to be able to leave and be able to work in um, you know, whatever tool is relevant at the time and pick those things up as quickly as they can. Um, so it's, it's not worth spending a whole semester on. Scott, do they have um, any prerequisites coming onto that class? Yeah, yeah. So I should have mentioned, so this class is an upper division elective, so they would all be juniors or seniors, and for the most part, they're choosing to take the class because they actually have other options. Um, so that that's usually good news for me. Sometimes people will be in it because it's you know the only thing that worked for their schedule. But certainly by the time they get to this point, they will have had a number of introductory and kind of intermediate design courses. They would have studied typography, publication design, web design, interactive design. So that's another, um, I don't know, I guess hurdle I don't have to deal with is because we know everyone's going to have at least some baseline understanding mm-hmm. of design terminology and practice, and you know, they're already familiar with how a, a critique can be structured. Um, so that that's really great. I think, like Andy, in your situation, you have people coming in from a variety of professional contexts, yes. and I would see that as being much more challenging because you have you sort of have to, in the first few minutes, establish your baseline terminology. Like, what does it mean when I say this? Yeah, and then we can talk about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think a key part of that is manage, managing expectations before the session uh, in in terms of the, the mm. material, the the information about the class, because. You know, if you don't manage the sense that we will do this and we won't do that and this is how it'll run, uh, people come on board and they'll just be very quickly, oh, well, this is great, but mm. where's the D3 <laughs> workshop? So, <laughs> uh, and, and there is a, you know, and certainly in the UK, there's a, there's a big demand for uh, visualisation training with D3. Um, so stick around mm-hmm. after you've finished it. The graphical web, Scott, and there'll be plenty of people looking to, to be kind of swept up on that because yeah. I, I don't know if there are, there are many people in place to actually deliver that in the UK, actually. So, yeah, yeah so it is, it is well, a challenge. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something like in, um, like in my book in particular, I deliberately do not address, I mean, except only very briefly, like any of sort of the visual principles of design. Like mm. It's purely about here's how to use the technology mm-hmm. and you're, either sort of understand the principles already of um, sort of creating a good design and good interaction or 
you're going to learn that from somewhere else. And so that's why, like, Indian, I'm super excited about your next book. So I've seen, like, the outline and really excited about that because that that addresses uh, sort of the other side. You know, it's like the design principles, but also this this process in a tool-independent way, which which I think is, I mean, this is, this is why this conversation comes up all the time for me, because it's, you can't actually separate the tools from the process. They're an essential part of the process. Yeah, um, you, know, you can't talk about like painting without the paintbrush. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But, um, but I think, yeah. you know, Andy, what I hope you will do <laughs> is, is give us some sort of, you know, no a structure, pressure. framework. No yeah, no pressure. Um, you know, some sort of framework for thinking about this process regardless of what we're doing right doing. right mm. yeah or what tools we're using but coming back to the interaction point uh that's also something like in my experience you know i love to do in interactive visualizations but when i'm teaching now i try to force people to rather do one mm. static graphic that is yeah, fairly absolutely. complex annotated has a certain depth to it yeah and when they master that maybe add like a filter or a resorting or something like this but but i've seen it also so often that people like spend like hours and days on a simple drop down or like you know mm -hmm. figuring out like when the data mm -hmm. has loaded and you know all that that yeah. stuff we that have was me with. actually you, you probably saw me doing that <laughs> yeah. yeah i remember that uh, get the shadow get the lens flare right times. yeah, yeah. And, yeah a couple of times and and it can be much And the most important thing is really figuring out, you know, the story and like what you want to do with the data, and that yeah. can often work much better in a static graphic. So, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. I, no, I have absolutely. to say that in in my in my case, I have the luxury to to work with uh, students that uh, come from the computer science uh, degree, and of course, I can to some extent uh, assume that they have at least basic knowledge. But um, even for them, I would, I think, I would teach them first to do like a magazine-style graphic because this teaches like yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, that, that's what I do like, with yeah, them. That goes in absolutely. the tooltip, you know, or absolutely. yeah, there will be a drop-down sure. for sure. that. You have absolutely. to make, yeah. make a good design decision in order to bring that graphic together, and I think that's yeah. the first thing. Yeah, yeah, but I think so. I think this whole idea of theory versus practice is very important to me because this is one of the things I've been struggling the most in my own course as well. And I have to say, I think my story is similar to Scott's. I, I, the first time, I think I gave this course three times already. And the first time I, I gave it, I, I went all the way down to the academic side and gave a lot of theory, a lot of principles. Um, all the encoding stuff, uh, lots of perceptual issues and all the rest. <laughs> and I just, I mean, my student just got lost, honestly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what I noticed over and over and over again is that all this knowledge doesn't transfer, doesn't transform or turn into, into being able to build uh, effective visualization. It just doesn't translate. So I think this is this is a fact that we have to accept. It doesn't matter how many principles you you provide, how much theory, how many times you explain this thing. You need to have practice. You need to have your students practicing this this theory. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. They're not going to absorb these things. Hmm. And um, so I think similarly, I changed my course uh, several times and introduced much much more practice. 
And uh, I have to say that for the first time in my last course, I introduced D3 and I didn't let my students choose other languages or frameworks. And this works just perfect, much, much better than I expected. And uh, I think one of the reasons is that the students manage to help each other a lot. They they mastered the, the, the language in a few weeks. I had a student teaching them a D3 seminar that went on for a few weeks. And the, the feedback from them was great, just great. But what I wanted to say is that it's not just a matter of learning the language itself or the technology. I think the advantage of having one single effective tool or language like D3 is the fact that uh, students can very quickly uh, realize something rather than doing exclusively on paper. They can quickly sketch something that you can see on a web page. And then I have the opportunity to give them a lot of feedback. And what I found this year is that giving a lot of feedback has a lot of educational impact in them. Because rather than, so every time I meet them and they show me an example, or they have shown me what they have done so far, and the thing that they show is on a screen, uh, this gives me the opportunity to give a lot of feedback and a lot of input that is very detailed. And all these details help them making things better. I think there is a lot of value there. So I don't know if you have any similar experience in your courses, but in my case, this worked extremely well. Because, of course, then when I am in front of, a, of an example like this one, I can, of course, I have many, I found myself um, restating some theory pieces that are applied to the specific case that they're showing to me through their project, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay? And this happens over and over again. And I think there's a lot of opportunities. But do one-on-one consultation or does that happen like so my uh, students have, in the class? I have, no, I have groups. So I have groups of students that uh, group together for a project. Mm -hmm. So normally I have projects with two or maximum three people. And uh, I give feedback to the group. And this works well. But then they have very patchy knowledge. So if they don't, um, I don't know, if they don't do a network project, they will learn nothing about networks, right? Yeah, but you know, I think it's much better to do one thing well rather than, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. and of course I show, I that's another thing. I try to have some kind of little workshops or seminars mm -hmm. where every student has the the as a chance to see the examples, all the other projects. Okay? Right, right. So I think at least twice or three times during the, the whole course, students have a chance to get a chance to see what other students mm -hmm. are doing. Mm -hmm. And, and do you teach really like well. in the beginning a few hours of basics or do you just dive right in? Oh, this is another big change I made. <laughs> Because, <laughs> so uh, this is what, uh, what I notice is that it takes a long time for students to conceptualize complex visualizations, okay? And I think this is connected to the literacy problem that Andy was mentioning at the sure. beginning. Yeah. So I think you have to assume that your students are totally illiterate in terms, of, in terms of visualization, right? And one thing that frustrated me over and over again before this last version of the course is that you teach this whole bunch of theory, you go through lots and lots of examples, then the first time they try to design something on their own, they come up with a couple of bar charts. They are bar charting everything, right? And But even worse than that, so I have nothing against bar charts, 
Stephen. <laughs> kind of sounds like you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I am a big fan of, of, of basic charts. I think you have to start from, from, from that all the time. But I th the thing that worries me the most, and that I try to address this here, is that uh, actually the bar chart is not the, co the cause, but is an effect of the fact that people start with this mindset that data analysis is about aggregation, right? Mm. So they are aggregating, aggre ranking, right? they are yeah. aggregating mm. data all the time. So I don't know why exactly, but <laughs> the way students come to my class is data analysis is done through statistical aggregation, okay? Mm. And mm. I think that the real power of visualization, you start seeing it where you disaggregate all these aggregates. And then it starts working really, really well. Yeah. But it takes a very long time for them to get into this whole concept that you have to show as many details as you can without overwhelming uh, people, right? And, and that's pretty hard. That's pretty hard. And, uh, and that's the way I changed my course at the beginning. So I'm saying that because that, that was a major change I made in the, the beginning of my course this year. Mm. And uh, I provided a lot of examples of visualizations that have lots of details and even invented this whole idea of aggregation twitch that is basically every time you, 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 you are confronted with a new data analysis problem, you start by the idea of let's aggregate everything and come up with yeah. four numbers, right? So what? I don't know if you have anything similar in your, in your courses. I would be curious to hear that. But I was... I would say, I mean, I, I agree with, I like this aggregation Twitch term, but I think it's actually not such a bad idea for students to start out uh, with a bar chart. I think I think it's great to start with tons and tons of examples. Like um, in, in my course, usually the first assignment is a super, super short assignment, but just sort of go out into the world and find a handful of infographics, statistical charts, whatever, and you know, find ones you think are interesting or ones you think are successful and ones you think are unsuccessful, and then write about them, like critique them, and then sort of tell us about it. So to me, the first step is absolutely like sort of building up this library in your head of what the possibilities are, these different visual forms. Um, the second thing, and what I'm going to try this next year, is um, the opposite of what you just said. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going to start with is have the first project be... Uh, called something like the, the perfect chart. And we're going to do a very simple, very straightforward chart, but it has to be ultra, ultra precise. Like uh -huh. Stephen Few would approve, uh, Edward Tufte <laughs> would approve. You know, it's going to be very simple. So this could be a bar chart, a line chart, or something like that. I'm not sure what the format will take. But I'll sort of, in order to make it more accessible, I'll start by providing the data set or a couple of possible data sets they choose what's most interesting because that's another thing we haven't talked about yet is just dealing with data is like this massive yeah. you know, learning curve for a lot of people who aren't used to it. So I'll provide the data. It's all clean and everything. And then we can spend the first few weeks of class working on, okay, making a chart by hand in Illustrator in very manual fashion, but really getting into the precision. Something that um, I'm sure my students hate in my classes is I am uh, super... I don't know. What's the word? What's a nice way? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want everything to be there for a reason, right? And yeah, if something's yeah, yeah. there not for a reason, or if something is inconsistent, uh, I'm going to point it out, and it's going to be a major problem. Because yeah, yeah, consistency yeah. to me is 
if you use the wrong color, or you, there are no wrong colors, right? There are bad colors and good colors. <laughs> if you use bad colors, um, at least be consistent with those bad colors so that I know what they mean, Make right? Really if you're bad. inconsistent with them, yeah. Even if they're really, you know. So it's, yeah, it's just to, you know. removing arbitrary decisions and making everything justified. Even if it's bad, you did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Orange, purple, and green yeah, because yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I, I so I, I don't know if this is established at yeah. first, like that you read charts and look for clarity and look like what's hindering clarity and yeah, like how do you get it to the point? I think that's that's one of the yeah, things. Yeah. I, I do have the same actually, but I, I struggle myself. So it's not clear to me I how to, to explain move. in detail. Oh, or, uh, no, no, I think I have I think I'm I'm I am quite satisfied with the way I'm teaching the basics, the basic charts. But then I think there is a huge gap going from there to to the next step. No, but honestly, if you understand visual variables and if you understand visual clarity and you know have sort of trained a few muscles there, in principle, then you can do any chart, right? I'm not sure. I think hmm. the problem that students have, at least in my class, is that they just cannot think of anything that is more complex than that right they don't have the vocabulary that is needed to think about it mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so i think that this vocabulary building is still a big challenge for me i don't know how what's the most effective way to build a vocabulary so more examples class. like isn't isn't vocabulary something that you acquire through exposure to lots of different examples maybe yeah but you have limited time also so yeah. what's the best way what are the best examples for that but i so, think there's, there's two forms of to me, to me, there's two forms of vocab. The first is, uh, and in terms of my sequencing, this is what I cover first. Um, the vocabulary to express the, the question that you're trying to answer visually. So kind of in, in actual words, what interrogations of the data are you trying to facilitate through a graphic? What questions do you want people to be able to answer through a graphic? And I find that actually that's a surprisingly large um, skill gap that kind of instinctive capability to be an analyst, to think about what's the interesting nuance of this data, all these different variables, what would be the real insight? And then I create a bridge between the data questions and then a broad gallery of different chart types, obviously demonstrating different encodings, different visual variables. And I give them a structure that will give them a sense of, if I've got this question to answer, let's say, I want to show something at the time, there is a group of chart types that will do that. And so by showing them, by giving them an awareness of, I think there's about 130 different chart types in this gallery, I'm trying to force them to broaden their visual vocabulary, the different ways that they could tell and show and portray these stories. But the first anchor point is expressing words, what you're trying to show. I want to show people how this ranks compared to that. Okay, well, these chart types may be the way to visually express that. So... Um, in a sense, it, it, whilst it does uh, tip the hat towards encodings and visual variables as a concept, it actually takes it, in a one-day course at least, it actually positions it more at the kind of chart-type level rather than as the kind of the real kind of um, nuts and bolts of the, of the chart device itself, which for my audience at least in the, in the one-day workshops give them a more kind of immediate, tangible sense of what the, the game is rather than perhaps a, a real long-term theoretical sense of the task of uh, visual encodings and the kind of balancing acts that goes with that. 
Yeah. And back we are to the what do you leave out and <laughs> like yeah, exactly. it's, it's just so much you can <laughs> yeah, talk about. Yeah. yeah. I have one question. Like we also had a tweet from Claire uh, at Relief, Relief Map. And uh, I was interested in that too. And she asks, uh, are there any tried and tested examples of beginner data with exercises uh, that help to engage and empower? And I think that's somehow the, yeah, that's key, like to have really mm. effective exercises. Do you have any, any exercise you, you repeatedly do and which are, like, yeah. which are effective in your reviews? Well, I, uh, there are two that I'll mention for now. I mean, I, I think in a one day session, we cover seven different exercises. Okay. Well. But mm-hmm. but the um, the first one, which I think is similar to Scott in, in its scope, is we look at three deliberately chosen graphics, and they get them to work in groups of threes and fours, and say, in the first five or ten seconds, articulate a word that captures your reaction. Is it good, bad, horrible, ugly, colourful, whatever? And then kind of a between that first ten seconds and the next minute, subjectively, do you like it? If it was in a magazine on the web. Would you stick around to engage with it? And then we move the discussion more towards, do you feel it adds value to the data? Would it have been better left as a table of numbers and categories? And do you feel it helps you understand the subject? So we're trying to get in this very first exercise, a kind of baseline assessment of where they are in terms of their perceptions of form and function. Do they like colourful, trashy infographics for the first minute? They're kind of seduced by the look of it. And then when you say, well, yeah, okay, but what, does it help you understand? Oh, no, no. But it's very mm-hmm. cool to look at. <laughs> so we're trying to challenge their existing perceptions about what they believe is good and bad. <laughs> and then the second exercise I'll mention now is this, um, which takes quite a while to, to run across a number of uh, sessions in the afternoon, which is kind of forensic design analysis. In, in some <laughs> respects, kind of semiotic analysis, but I... I teach kind of five layers of design, so data representation, chart types, colour, interactive anima- interactivity and animation, annotation and arrangement. And I teach them the concepts of each one individually, and then we look at two graphics as a theme running throughout all the afternoon, and we get them to look through the lens of just that particular theme one by one and say, how mm. well have they used colour, for example? Right. What could they have done in an ideal world? Mm-hmm. If it's a static, what could they have done for interactive? If it's interactive, mm-hmm. how does that work? So kind of layer by layer, this kind of forensic detail analysis, really build this sophistication of, of the language of critique, which in, in a sense helps them develop their convictions about good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst they're not actually building anything, it gives them this kind of free means beyond the session to look at any visualisation and learn from it and have that kind of critical evaluation. So they're, they're two uh, exercises that I feel work really well in terms of the reaction from the people in the, in the group, but also to embed what I've just taught them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and often people are really surprised how much you can... Exactly. Like once you start dissecting a chart, like how yeah. it unfolds, it becomes more and more <laughs> instead of less and less. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's a tick mark, pixel mm-hmm. resolution, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I have two more like exercises I like to do, or a couple of them, but two that were really quite effective. And I often start with... Um, the 45 ways that uh, Santiago oh, yeah. uh, Ortiz oh, put yeah. together. Yeah. Mm. And it's just one. about visualizing two, a, a data set consisting of two numbers, like 37, 75, something like this. Mm. And he came up with 45 ways and there's even more. And I like to like have people five minutes come up with as many ways as possible to visualize these two numbers. Mm. And people have crazy ideas, you know, and, and you come up with this... 
as a group of 20 people, easily with 40, usually with more ways yeah. of visualizing these numbers. And Do you give them like a time limit? Yeah, like, and then I play the Jeopardy music and it's big fun and so on. <laughs> 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 yeah, and usually we do it on post-its and so we can sort them and talk about them. See, here we have 10 bar charts and like three mm. scatter plots, things like that. And then always the big question is, yeah, but some of them are better than others, right? Or yeah, it depends. Maybe, you know, if the data set is like actually represents this and that, this one might actually be better. In other cases, not. And you're easily into that discussion of how much is theoretically possible and what's the best solution in a given uh, context. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like to do that for to get started. And the other one is uh, similar to yours, I think, is is to use the same or to discuss different visualizations of the same data set and like give one group. Right. So, so I did that on the exoplanets data set because basically everybody has visualized it at some point. And so, <laughs> so no, and there's really good and very different uh, visualizations of the exoplanets uh, data set yeah. out there. And so you might give one group, I don't know, the J.R. Thorpe one and the Jan Willem Tulp one, and they mm. analyze it independently. But then when they see what the other group says about their work, they suddenly see different stuff because mm. they're already mm. experts, maybe. So that yeah, works well, too. I'm not sure this is a tried and tested example, but one, one thing I like to do in my class is do at least one project that is based on uh, personal data, mm -hmm. so where the students, like I love this project of making a map of your social network. And that's not like your Facebook friends. That's like your actual social network of people that you've met in real life. And so as part of that, they need to create a oh, spreadsheet. They need and, some friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you need some friends to start. So that's the fun part. Like you go out and meet a bunch of people, right? And then you come back <laughs> and you write down <laughs> all their names. Later, years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, years later. Yeah, this course takes a long time. Takes a long time. No, but it's, it's like an opportunity to sort of collect... Uh, information about people and think about um for me before we even get to the visualization side this addresses the the data side is thinking about how to structure data like okay well i have say the requirement is we have to collect 20 to 50 people in your data set well how do i set up that spreadsheet okay mm -hmm. i probably have a column with their name and some basic information okay i'm going to give them their age and where they live and what country they're from or whatever stuff like that um but I think it, it's really, I, I was surprised last semester in particular how into Excel my students got. Because to me, that's sort of like the tedious part is like, oh, okay, you collect the data and you type it up and you clean it up and get it in the right format. Um, but they got really into it doing all kinds of sort of like analysis and getting into formulas and like going way beyond what I was expecting. Um, so to me, that I think that, that process of collecting a data set yourself, whatever it is, is really important. Like if you're dealing with exoplanet data, well, you didn't collect that yourself and that's great, but you have to have some sort of understanding that this information came from somewhere. Somebody put a lot of time and energy and money and resources into collecting that information and hopefully it's accurate or reflective of something that's really going on in the world. So I, I think it's, it's really nice to start small and then collect your own data that's personally meaningful to you and then start visualizing it and expressing it. And the best projects are the ones where, you know, the students get really excited because they actually discovered something about their network that maybe they didn't know before. I think what's nice about that, Scott, as well is, because um, one of the things I try and um, cover is the idea that, you know, data, I think actually on the last episode of Data Stories, Jeff Thorpe articulated it very well. You know, data 
is not the thing. Data is about the thing. Yeah. And I think when you when you get the students therefore to collect their own data, there's a mm. there's an implied greater emotional connection to it. There's a greater meaning. They they recognise it's not just ones and zeros and or data points. Right, it's right. it's something. And and I guess throughout the training that I do, I'm trying to give people a sense that you you've always got to have at the back of your mind just some design, almost like a mood board, a sense of what this thing looks like physically. Because when you get to the design mm. stage, you can exploit those cues or clues and so pinterest for data pinterest for data exactly and i think by by getting them to have that kind of personal investment in the data it just gives them that greater connection rather than just some bland let's say financial data mm. or something that it, even if it's not bland about the about the city around them they might not just immediately connect to it whereas that's that's a really nice way to to go forward i think so this resonates very well with some of the stuff I do in my course as well. So I think this year I implemented a couple of new things. One is, so in general, when I assign projects to my student, if I can, I try to have some sort of client for them, mm -hmm. which normally works really, really. Of course, it's an additional challenge and responsibility, but this gives much more... I think it gives a lot more experience in terms of practical experience in terms of how this kind of job looks like when you do it for real, right? So you have a client, this person is providing you data and hopefully some some big questions, right? Yeah. And I think the big question part is really important there because data, I think we discussed thing, this thing many times here. You can do whatever you want with data, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. you, you can give it the as much shape as you want, right? You can torture a data set as much as you like. But what really matters is actually, are you actually providing value to another, to, to some people? So this person can be yourself if this is personal data, but most likely is somebody else. So I, I try to do that. Of course, it's not uh, feasible to do it for every single project, but most of my projects look like that. And, and and it's great to have feedback from these people afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. And um, another thing I did in my course this year, I had a person, so this was, it just happened basically. So this person contacted me, uh, she's a lawyer, and told me, hey, look, I have this data set, I'm trying to pursue this specific uh, cause, and I need help uh, in looking into this data, okay? And at that time, I was I was teaching. Uh, I was in I think in the middle of my course, and I decided to let these people come in class, show the data set, and say, "Look, I have this problem," and I assigned this problem as an exercise because the data set was pretty small and trivial, right? So I, I used this opportunity to let students use and learn Tableau and come up with solutions with Tableau. And it's pretty amazing what they did. And I think this whole idea of letting them experience the pain of analyzing data through mm -hmm. visualization gives them a sense of what visualization is for, right? Because regardless whether you are developing visualization tools for data analysis or you are using visualization to communicate um, for storytelling or similar purposes, you always have to go through some degree of data analysis, right? And data analysis is really painful to some extent, right? I think that's a great point, Enrico. And, and once again, going back to the previous episode, I, I, I thought this was a wonderful way, wonderful way of describing the different perspectives of visualization that Joe mentioned, which was visualization is both the verb and the noun. And 
it's not just about visualization as an end product, as a, as, as a something that you give to people, but it's that process of discovery, process of getting intimately familiar with this raw material that you've got to work with. And I think that's a very important stage that, once again, I think is a skill gap out there, being able to tease out the, the nuggets of wisdom that exist in, in the data that you've got, if there are any, of course. But also just picking up on the, the thing you mentioned there about having a kind of client. So on my uh, MICA class, which is um, eight weeks, 16 lectures, uh, we had a, a, a client um, in this in the, the most recent delivery of the, of the module. And one of the things that I think is very important, which we don't really have a chance to cover in the one-day class that I gave, but it's such an important attribute, is the ability to communicate with people and ask questions and interrogate them about oh, the data they've got. That's huge. That's huge. And and present ideas and get feedback and take on board feedback and not be precious about the ideas that you've come up with. Um, and translate your ideas into something that is in layman's terms accessible to to a client. And it's something that I you know I do try and stress on the on the longer form class that I'm doing for Mike, but it's a it's a kind of a it's one of the kind of hidden attributes of a good visualization designer that I think is is very important to to get across that. You could have the, the very best designer developer who just sits in front of a screen because that's where they're confident, but mm. can't quite engage with a a normal person in quotes. In, in my in my science workshops, this is often the bottom line. Like get your colors right for Christ's sake and uh, <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about general communications like how do you like how do you fit something into a headline you know or like why yeah why is a chart at a certain place in a paper and what what role does it have in that communication context mm. and then the details who cares you know it's often like that it's, no and this is especially point. true with scientists Moritz because you are totally I right here I, know. I, uh, I have a little experience with a research project we did with a group of climate scientists analyzing a fairly large set of pictures images coming from their from their publications and one thing we notice is that scientists just don't most scientists don't seem to uh, distinguish enough between visualization when they use visualization for their own data analysis mm -hmm, purposes mm -hmm. yeah. and how to report these results in a paper or presentation to third parties right so they assume that this visual representation is the same or should be the same right yeah which is the worst case because if you want to go <laughs> right i mean of course it's the worst case right yeah, and and yeah. so they just end end up taking screenshots it's just of the, the last same exploratory graphic they did becomes exactly the <laughs> exactly. and, and normally, I mean, 99.9% exactly of the times it's, exactly it's, it's crap, it. yeah. right? And it still has the Excel Rome column headers. <laughs> yeah, there's no curation, right, of these images. And I think, I think it would be fantastic to have a course somewhere that is purely kind of like data visualization, whatever, curation for, for scientists, It should right? be mandatory for any PhD student. Yeah, That's what I, I always <laughs> say. Yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not easy at all right yeah no it's true yeah good stuff man i think we need to wrap it up soon do we have is there anything should we cover anything like well how, how do you do it like one interesting question is always like how do you continue after you let's say the bug has bitten you and you have a few basic you know enough to start to become dangerous like what do you recommend people like which tools to continue with or how to, yeah, after your course, like how does it go on? Well, I think this is where you switch from 
teaching to learning. And I think, obviously, there is so much stuff out there for someone to learn themselves. And it's, obviously, it's the blogs, it's the books, it's the academic right. papers. But I think, first and foremost, it's practice. Um, I mean, one of the key tips I give people who come on my uh, public workshops is enter things like uh, the visualising.org contest. Because you've got the data set, you've got a brief, mm. you've got a time frame, so it's a kind of a, an artificial constraint environment. You've got the potential to upload your work and see what others have done on the same data set. You might win a prize, you might get a special mention, who knows. But the idea that, that there are so many opportunities out there to, to, to practice, 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 because there's, there's always something new, even in a very similar data set, there's always something new. The shape of data might be different, which just screws up the previous approach or idea. So... Practice, 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 I think, is the most important thing to, to get people to develop. Look at other works, critique what they've been doing. Um, do things like narratives on, online. No. I mean, it does take a, a certain amount of courage to put yourself out there on blogs uh, and to say, here's my project, and then to wait for the, <laughs> the onslaught of, uh, of criticism <laughs> and critique on, on Twitter. But it's, uh, it is a wonderful way to... You know, here's a little plug for our friend John Schwabish. Go to Help Me Viz. Put your work on there. Get feedback on what you've Good done. Point, yeah. You know, develop in a, in a non-judgmental amnesty sort of setting. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that you can do off your own back. Get a data set, play with it. Yeah, I think it's, I totally agree. And I would say, you know, practice is super important, but also that promotional aspect. Not, not that you should be a 100% self-promoter, but just getting the work out there. So you need to do the project mm -hmm. and then you need to, it has to go on the web somewhere and it has to be somewhere where people can see it or people will find it. And maybe, you know, I find Twitter super helpful for that, but there are a lot of other avenues, blogs and things you could use. And that's, um, that's partly to engage other people in the conversation, but partly also for you as the person learning to get sort of gauge the response to the kind of the work that you're doing. Right. Uh, you know, like usually that when I get that question where it's of like, well, what should I do now? Like, do, should I learn D3 or something? And it's like, well, you know, D3 is great for a specific sort of use case if that's what you're trying to do. But I think it's really more important to find, I don't know, you know, come up with these questions that you want to answer or ideas that you want to explore. And I know that it's like so unhelpful, right, for students to be like, oh, yeah, I want to find ideas to explore or whatever. It's so vague. Uh, but really, those are the most interesting projects, you know, like, um, and, and you, you eventually you accumulate sort of this portfolio of these smaller projects, and maybe they get more and more complex over time. And then that sort of leads yeah, to you yeah. getting into the field in a more professional way, getting a job, whatever it is. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, that sort of makes me think. So to a friend of mine, to Nagli, he wrote on Twitter, if teaching has changed or if, you know, if, if learning about data has changed, maybe now that it becomes much more popular. And I'm wondering if now with the mass of people interested in that, like if it's so easy to get noticed at all at, at this point in time, because there's so much stuff happening. So if somebody puts out a D3 visualization, do people care? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> I think there's a lot of space, honestly. Yeah? yeah, I do. I think if you've done good work, it will find its way to the field at large, the bloggers of the Twitter, the Twitterers amongst us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's it's tough, Andy. I, I'm not sure I agree with you, honestly. I mean, starting today is much, much tougher. Come on. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I still think there is, you know, if you can put yourself out there with, you know, let's okay, let's not let's say in, in a one-off situation, but two or three. If you start to develop a portfolio, it will get found. And if you start to put yourself in front of, you know, write. I mean, I as a blogger, I get a lot of emails saying, "Here's a, another project I've done. Would you care to take a look?" And hotel you know, infographic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let, let me be more specific. I think it's not it's not hard to have a career in visualization right now because there is a lot of demand. Yeah. But I think it's hard to become uh, a hyped uh, kind of designer or, or right. Whatever, so yeah, right? yeah, that's the distinction. So, yeah. There's not yeah. a These lot of places space are for taken that. already. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. Away. I mean, becoming the next uh, Moritz Stefaner is not easy at all. I guess. Yeah, it's gonna take. Well, there's. Years, I think so there's. There will be space again. There are like a couple <laughs> kinds of projects that get people's attention. I think they're sort of like the tech demos that are really cool. You know, oh look, I invented a new way to create this kind of 3D globe mappy thing, you know? And there's, I think a lot of those things have been taken on the yeah. web because, yeah. you know, it's like JavaScript's just been getting and better, getting better and better, and browsers mm -hmm. have been getting and better. Uh, D3 is getting better. A number of other, like, rendering tools are getting better. So a lot of these just sort of eye candy, is this even technically possible? That kind of visualization, I think that's harder to do. But I think um, in terms of, like, developing these visual stories I know, loaded word stories but developing these visual stories that connect with people i think that's that's not taken at all i think um gregor eich who's been on the show has yeah. um a really fantastic story like he wasn't coming from a journalism background but he was just interested in i think it was like political issues things that were going on uh in germany at the time and he said hey i have the skills to you know, parse this data and make maps or, you know, make charts and figure out what's going on. And he just started publishing that on his own personal website. And that led to this whole fantastic uh, career in kind of what we call data journalism. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, the, there's always new things. Maybe you can't just reproduce uh, a graphic somebody else has already made, but with better colors that maybe that doesn't count, you know, but you can... Uh, find some new story and there are new stories like every day that could translate into visualizations. Have you seen that Boston underground graphic or oh, the, the whole site? No. Yeah. yeah it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's a student project. So that's a point in case maybe for, um, that there's still space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've covered it. Accepted. It. Accepted. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. We've, we've, we've put the topic to bed. Yeah, yeah. Do we have all the all the listeners? <laughs> Excellent. Do we have more? Like, shall we? Uh, we have a few more questions on Twitter, but I don't have one handy. Does anybody have one they want to answer, or how does it look? Um, well, there's questions we such as cover... what are the three most important things to remember when communicating with this? I mean, this. I think most of the questions go beyond just the scope of this uh, this episode in general, but. Um, I like that for for some for someone who doesn't believe in database how do we engage them I am working I'm working towards database adoption so it's kind of evangelizing I think I was going to say I think that Enrico you're always asking for success stories right yeah. I think we should just make like a compilation yeah. of success stories of visualizations that really yeah, that had some huge impact on the world or solved a particular problem. Like, that's how you can convert people. Yeah, yeah but 
You tried I, that, I, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that... I know so Bill what, Gates what? started his foundation <laughs> because of a, of a chart. I know Hans Rosling did this great presentation <laughs> yeah. a few years ago. Um, yeah. So one shortcut is to just don't work with these people. There are so many people who are interested in this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best solution. Like, if the best solution is that is just ignore, ignore people who are not interested in this. Who cares? There are so many other clients out yeah, that, there. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> right? But no, I mean, I, I, a few... They I have think bigger problems, a, right? A couple of months <laughs> ago, I guess, I gave a, I gave a talk here at NYU in the, at the Center of Data Science. And in the middle of my talk, I started saying something along the line, we, we don't have lots of success stories out there, so we still have to demonstrate that visualization has lots of impacts. And uh, I think the word that I use is we didn't, people didn't make major discoveries with this, right? And then one of the professors raised his hand and said, no, that's not true. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I work in biology and I could give you, I don't know how many examples of discoveries that have been made in biology through visualization. So, and <laughs> I think I mean, it's just a matter of... doctor we... makes like 10 yeah, discoveries exactly. a day, like, you know, with visualization. So it's, <laughs> it's more just a matter of defining exactly what is at what level we define discovery and success story and also a matter of making sure that there is a place where these uh, success stories are collected and That's told the thing, because I'm sure there are plenty them. of them. Yeah. It's just we that need we have John to... Yeah, we need John to start helped me viz. Yeah, it's all, all the charts. Oh. That's an, ex yeah. an excellent story. That works really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, just Saved one little story was um, I did a class uh, at the start of this year and a, a lady who came along to the class um, suffers from diabetes and she was inspired just by the subject, not by me. Oh, you never know. Yeah. Um, to, to stick it into a line chart. At the readings every day that she took mm. from, um, I can't remember the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, but yeah, she plotted the data into line chart and she saw this pattern the evidence why she felt so bad at certain times of day mm -hmm. and after certain things like going to the gym or eat certain uh, diets. Uh, and it's a very small scale success story, um, but wouldn't have been articulated unless it was actually sought from her, which I did at the end of the class. So I think the problem is that there will inevitably be success stories. It's just that we're not there to, to witness it or to even get the person to realize that it is as a result of doesn't change the fact that Enrico should make that web page with the top 10 life-saving data visualizations. That's it, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, does, that doesn't change that fact at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's called Last Night at Wiz Saved My Life. Yeah. There's a song, there's a song to write there as well. Yeah. Exactly. A whole boy group on the horizon. <laughs> okay, Good guys, stuff. I think we need to wrap it up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We're over time. Our broadcast time has evaporated. <laughs> as usual. As, as usual. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Fantastic Thank discussion. You. Thank you. I mean, we can do this once every year. I don't think the topic will go away, and it will be uh. <laughs> it will always be a challenge. <laughs> but I uh, really appreciate your input. Good stuff. Thank you. Thanks yeah. all. Thank you so much. Bye yeah. guys. Thank bye, you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye, bye, bye guys. Bye.